Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. Nearly 47% of the paid workforce in Australia are women. Yet the pay gap between men and women is about 18%. But that's okay, because apparently all women need to do to improve the situation is to lean in. That terrible catch-all suggesting women are the cause of their own lack of leadership opportunities due to an alleged deficiency in risk-taking, assertiveness and courage. Fortunately, author and journalist Catherine Fox has built a career calling out such biased nonsense, taking a deeply researched approach to examining the genuine barriers to women's ascension in the workforce. Her latest book, Stop Fixing Women, considers the actions of corporate Australia to address gender inequity and highlights some of the more dynamic and often controversial improvement practices now being implemented. Having written the Australian Financial Review's Corporate Woman section for over 20 years, Catherine remains an important voice in the need for informed and immediate change. Hello, Catherine. Thank you for joining. Thank you, James. Given the nature of the year, I feel that any sort of conversation, and as a man, should begin with, as a father of daughters, because that seems to be the go-to line. So tell me about the daughter effect. Daughter effect, yes, daughter syndrome. It's, um, gee, we've been hearing a lot of it lately, including from people like Matt Damon, and so on, who have been called out a bit on it. And I I guess I just should be careful here because I'm the first to acknowledge that personal motivation can often come from things you see around you. Uh, And I'm certainly not against that, nor do I think it's a bad thing. But I am fascinated by the reliance on daughters when it comes to sexism and discrimination because it's always, and I've heard it for years, it's always amazed me I very rarely hear men, uh, certainly in public life, talking about their wives or partners, uh, their sisters, uh, their mothers, and indeed their female peers. And I think, isn't that fascinating? So I think there is something deeply interesting about the whole daughter syndrome and this incredible fierce sort of um, politicising that these men suddenly apparently get when they look at their daughters. So there's something deeply interesting about that. I'm not not a psychoanalyst, but I suspect there's some some interesting threads to it. Is it a remotely acceptable penny drop moment, though? Oh, of course it is. Look, anything that is a legitimate penny drop, I think, fantastic. You know, you've seen something and suddenly thought, oh, goodness, that's actually happening to somebody I know and, in fact, has my DNA uh, which is important as well. Um, if that if that pulls the scales from your eyes, that's great. What you do with that then, I think, is really important. So I recently wrote a column on this and uh, said, terrific, but go and then apply it to your workplace. Look around you at the women around you who have competed with you, by the way, uh, because let's be honest, this isn't just about being protective towards one of your offspring. It's about the women around you who've also been discriminated against. Uh, so I think it's really important that that penny drop is accompanied by action and uh, progression. This is something that's been very close to your heart for your entire career, and you came to journalism quite late, really. So I think the term was a mature cadet <laughs> 28. I think that's right. I think there was me and Steve Lewis, and we started off at the Fin Review, and we were in our late 20s. So, um, yes, it's sort of... Bit of a tautology to call somebody a, a mature cadet, isn't it? But there we were, and um, with a couple of people who are in their early 20s. Um, of course, late 20s sounds ridiculously young to me now, but yes, we were a bit later into it. But, you know, I suppose the, the uh, 
um, upside was that uh, both of us, in fact, had had experience elsewhere and done other things. So, yes, that, that was right. But I'd always wanted to be a journalist and I suppose that was the point. Why was that? What was the driving force for you? Yes, it's interesting. I don't think there was one. Um, I certainly loved writing. Uh, I, I wrote my first novel when I was about nine or ten in an exercise book about um, colonial Sydney. Um, it didn't survive. I think it was about three pages long with illustrations. Oh, wow. Yeah. I thought you were going to say it didn't sell. <laughs> no, well, it certainly didn't sell. I don't think anyone read it except me. Uh, so loved writing. That was certainly my forte in school. Loved literature. Uh, but then became increasingly fascinated by the world of journalism. So um, I think it was applying those writing skills in a really, you know, uh, I suppose a concrete way, um, earning a living. And that was certainly one of the ways you could earn a living. So I was, I was a pragmatic person. I knew I had to. Um, so having come from a very conservative Catholic uh, family, it was still made very clear to me early on, my sister and I, and we have two brothers, that we were all expected to get some qualifications and earn a living. That, that was kind of a no-brainer. A, a no uh, so I guess that was an avenue to use those writing skills. And, um, yeah, and as I was growing up, I didn't start out in journalism, as, as you realise, from being a mature cadet, but I worked in financial communications, uh, media relations and so on for some years, uh, both in Sydney and London, but still harbouring this desire to, to be a journalist. And then through sort of happenstance, I became quite friendly with the financial reviews correspondent in London, we used to catch up occasionally and she just said to me, you should apply to the Finn. And I said, I'm too old. And she said, no, you're not. And that's what happened, in fact. So I did apply and uh, that's when I became a journalist. And, it, you know, I knew from the moment I walked in to the newsroom that I had found my tribe. Really? It was an immediate Absolutely. Wow. No questions about how, it. How deeply satisfying, though, having worked in finance and worked in PR as such. Yeah, incredible. So lovely matching of skills. And by the way, a lot of people I know in journalism, in broader circles, might think financial and business journalism, oh, you know, I loved it. I still love it. I love writing about workplaces. We spend so much of our lives in them. Um, I still remain incredibly passionate. And my, my interest, of course, in women's rights uh, it coalesced with, with workplace change and workplace of the future and so on. And that's, that's blending, which allowed me to write. And it, it, it continues to blend as well, which is that one of your very first articles was about superannuation. And, of course, in the book, you know, Don't Stop Fixing Women, um, you address the issue of the fact that 35% of Australian women don't have superannuation as well. So this is an ongoing story for you. Oh, it is very much so. I mean, sadly, isn't it? Because that's nearly 30 years ago that I first, well, I joined the Finn in the early 90s, uh, but I have been writing about these issues for all that time. And unfortunately, the ingredients that led to women being marginalised um, in superannuation terms in the early 90s are still the same. They are the same. So that Senate inquiry into women's retirement savings last year, I think the report came out from that, made the point that those awful statistics, which I've got, I mean, women have 45% of men's superannuation earnings, a substantial number have no super at all, women are more likely to live in poverty in old age and so on. Um, those ingredients haven't changed. So my daughters, my three daughters, are facing that scenario because it's about lack of affordable and accessible childcare, uh, broken tenure in the workplace, um, unpaid caring, and so on. As Liz Broderick always says, the reward for a lifetime of caring is often poverty. It's a stunning number, even when you look at the figures of like, I think there's something like 197,000 is the estimated average um, final income or earnings of a, of a male, and yet it's about 105000 just for a female. And that's, that's if they've had a full, rich career. 
as well. So you can just imagine the poverty that people are living in when they haven't had that or they're left to their own devices. In one of the wealthiest countries in the world, yes. which is moving and has been moving for some time, of course, uh, to self-funded retirement. So the whole point being that we get people off the pension and government dependency. And yet, what are we doing about this? So yes, uh, depressing, but need, we just need to keep going and, and talk about this a bit more. These are structural issues, by the way. Telling women that the way to address that is to become more financially literate is a classic example of why fixing women isn't just a nuisance, it's sending us backwards. So I raised in the introduction the idea of lean in, which of course has been attached to Sheryl Sandberg with her successful book, but it seems to also have unfortunately created this bias idea that women can't be courageous, that they're holding themselves back, they don't put their hands up. And, and you really address that in the book. book. Could you maybe take me through some of that? Because it doesn't seem to be any foundation of success or, or neuroscience to prove this. Well, no, no, it doesn't. And, I mean, I, I must just sort of start by saying that Sheryl Sandberg herself has had a bit of a mea culpa about it and said, I've, I've realised I underestimated some of the structural issues involved. Um, and I don't think, I think, I think Sheryl Sandberg's done something important. She did put this back on the business agenda in a, in a big way. I think in Australia we've gone even further for a whole lot of reasons we can discuss. But the whole lean-in thing, it's very individualistic. It's about you as a single woman. You, you can change this. You can shift it. And darn, if you didn't, you've only got yourself to blame. What a shame. Didn't lean in. Didn't negotiate. Well, that split-second decision, oh, which can flies in the face of all the information and data we now have about structural bias and discrimination. So this is the deficit model. The deficit it? model. That, that women are actually just unfortunately, inherently lacking the very qualities you need to succeed in paid work. Oh, what a shame. And isn't that a coincidence? So yeah, you know, risk averse, not ambitious enough, don't lean in. You know, the other thing about lean in that's really quite irritating to women of my age, it sort of implies no one did. I mean, ask a bunch of grumpy women like me with a glass of wine in their hand and we'll tell you we were leaning in for years. All that happened was he knocked ourselves out on the table. So I don't think it was helpful. And I also think this idea that if you adjust your behaviour, your individual behaviour, um, and all those barriers will dissolve away in front of you, um, as I say, is, is annoying um, and not founded on any evidence. And also we don't have the stats to back that up. Look at women's progress into leadership. In the US, in Australia, look at the gender pay gap. Look at all of those markers. And unfortunately, they haven't shifted very much. They've narrowed a bit, but, but not a lot. And this is a big thing for you within the book that you keep calling for research and science to back up the foundations of these arguments because we seem to have lived the last several decades, well, I shouldn't say decades, it's probably hundreds of years, without that research, those foundations to make such comments. We've relied heavily in the space of gender, both in workplaces and throughout society, on assumptions that we make, which again have been highly convenient. So women are better suited to looking after children um, and to cleaning the toilet. I beg to differ. Uh, we've, we've created all of these explanations, if you like, and people often say to me, but women say this too. Yeah, women are part of society. They have absorbed these messages and look what they get rewarded for. Do they get rewarded for being bolshy and taking powerful jobs and roles? Not on the whole. Not on the whole. In fact, quite the reverse. Women face double standards, sometimes triple standards in those jobs. Uh, however, uh, 
They don't get overtly rewarded for being good house carers and childminders, but they do get penalised if they don't do it well. So we have a whole series. And, and also on the other side of it, we also have a whole lot of assumptions about masculinity um, and the, the onus that we put on men to be breadwinners, for example, uh, which I think is still really potent. Uh, we have a very strong, by the way, in Australia, a lot of studies have revealed we have a very strong male breadwinner model that is still in play here. Um, and I, I think that's that's true. So I think unpacking that, we often talk about, oh, it's a very blokey culture. Yes, it is. But our tax system and a whole lot of the infrastructure in this country around work still very much favours a male breadwinner. So and what sort of societal that. impact does that have, though, on the, on the men themselves? Oh, yes, well, exactly. And I think that that can be one. Well, I think it's, it's a huge amount of onus on them, you know, the pressure on them to have careers or jobs that are reliable and that they keep advancing in, uh, the incredible worry they have about losing a job, which, by the way, clearly women do too, and women are increasingly um, either sole or um, majority breadwinners in many households as well. So let, let's be clear here. But I think that that sort of potent um, adherence to masculine standards um, is very old-fashioned. So I think we get a lot of aggression from men about the erosion that they see, you know, happening around them if women get jobs. And you'll often hear, in fact, in informal conversations, men saying, but they're taking our jobs. The jobs don't belong to one cohort. Jobs should be open to anyone who can do it, right? But we hear that kind of language a lot. So I think it reinforces all those ideas uh, that men are the, the natural uh, breadwinners, uh, that they have to have uh, sustained careers in one area, that they, have, they shouldn't be staying home to look after children, for example. All those kind of critical areas that women have had to be addressing, um, I think those masculine stereotypes um, also play a role in that, in sustaining that. It's interesting to, to talk about some of the views from men when they responded to some of these changes that are being implemented. And we'll get into some of those during our discussion from ANZ through to the Australian Defence Force. But the idea comes through very clearly that those who are privileged, those who have privilege, often don't recognise it. That's right. So what... What can we be doing or should we be doing when you looked at these various organisations to try and improve the balance? And it's not improving women, it's improving the balance and the understanding of I guess my whole book is an answer to that <laughs> um, because what I tried to do and what I've always done in my writing is try and make it as practical as possible to go to those organisations and people that I felt were being very constructive, were actually working things out, whether they were using blind or anonymous recruiting, so redacting the name of the applicant. This, is, this has been used, by the way, in a number of places. I first came across it many years ago. A London law firm was using it, not around gender. They had found they were disproportionately appointing Oxbridge graduates to their firm. What a surprise, will say some people. Uh, so they decided to do uh, a blank out the name of the university of their applicants for their graduate program and lo and behold it had a dramatic effect on the people they were appointing because we all have biases by the way yeah, men the, and it's women the, it's the merchant it's, banker idea if we only employ our own exactly employing people in your own image so um there are those kinds of techniques there's uh, simon rothery from goldman sachs saying you know i'm just not having this um everyone approaching me at bonus time to lobby for a, a bigger bonus we're not doing that anymore we'll assess bonus, you know, allocation on its own merits. Um, in fact, using that word merits reminds me the whole meritocracy myth, um, which is very tied up with entitlement. Um, it's a highly subjective term. People use it all the time as actually as an argument against 
uh, better equality measures. Uh, they say we only appoint on merit. Well, it's fascinating if you do that because we know statistically that the vast bulk of leaders in all kinds of organisations and institutions are still white men. So if you're appointing on merit, that must mean there's no merit in any other part of the population. I don't believe that and I don't think most Australians do. I think most Australians would, would say, yes, talent's distributed. So I think we have to unpack all of those things. The entitlement one is a fascinating one. There's a quote in the book from the wonderful uh, sociologist, American um, sociologist Michael Kimmel, who says privilege is invisible to those who have it. So the ones who actually step back, um, the men that I've quoted throughout the book, have actually taken that on board and actually examined themselves and looked at the advantages they had. Uh, and, you know, that can be quite confronting and challenging. But some of them have done it. And when they've realised that, and they've and the other part of that puzzle, there's many parts, but the other one that I think is fascinating and that we're seeing playing out at the moment is they're listening to women. They don't know the answers because they're not women. So they can be sympathetic, I'm not suggesting otherwise, but to actually understand what women are going through and what their careers have been like. I was quite intrigued by um, one of the mentoring ideas that was implemented, and I can't remember which uh, business it was in, but where they, instead of associating an older man with a woman to help teach them about the way to work in the business, they had the younger woman put with the older male to teach them about their world and their experiences, and that was making the difference. That's right. It's called reverse mentoring. It's actually been around for a long time. I did mention it again because I was in the UK when I was writing most of the book, and um, it's one of the big four professional services firms, I think it was KPMG, I'm pretty sure it was, had announced they were doing, I think they'd used it before, but they'd launched a new reverse mentoring program and they interviewed one of the male partners who said he was just amazed by the insights that he had gained. And, of course, it changes around that power equation um, that we're unfortunately seeing um, playing out with vivid detail with the sexual harassment um, and the Me Too campaign. Um, and as we know, it's about power imbalances. And I think that reverse mentoring is a fascinating idea. There are other versions of mentoring because I was very careful not to say you should throw out all your mentoring schemes, they're ridiculous. They're not. But I think the classic traditional powerful man with the slightly more junior woman um, programs that a lot of companies put in and spend a lot of money on, I think by and large have failed to deliver the results and I think we need to look at different ways of mentoring. Well, at times you are quite critical of mentoring though because mm. you suggest that maybe not mentoring is needed but support programs yeah. are needed. Can you define the difference between the two and why that is? Okay, well, mentoring is usually a one-on-one -on -one relationship and as I say, it's often senior man, slightly less, less uh, senior woman. She's trying to you know, advance her career. Um, by the way, I think mentoring occurs all the time. It doesn't have to be formal. And when I was growing up, a mentor was just someone who took an interest in you. I think that's still the case and I think it happens. Um, but unfortunately, I think these traditional programs have been used as a bit of a compliance measure. So what are you doing about, oh, we've got a mentoring program. So they're very individualised. They're often targeted at high talent groups, you know, the, the real achievers. So they're not going to reach out throughout the organisation to women who, who may be struggling at all levels of an organisation. So I think that they're probably expensive um, and in terms of cost-benefit ratio, I think it's time to look at, at different measures. Um, I have suggested different forms of it, peer-to-peer uh, -peer mentoring and so on, which can open up networks. So... Um, you're right. I wanted to make the point in the book, I am not suggesting the baby goes out with the bathwater. There are lots of great programs to support women, 
but not to fix them. So putting them through remedial programs and telling them, telling them constantly they lack confidence. Gee, that's a good way to build it, isn't it? Tell you constantly you don't have it. Um, and instead look at context that women are behaving in, you know, look at meeting dynamics and so on, giving them the support um, and giving them access to networks um, I think is really important. So I think until we reach um, uh, Camelot, as David Morrison, uh, former Chief of Army, puts it, uh, there's a lot of support that we need to provide, but I am very critical of programs that constantly tell women they need to fix themselves up um, without taking into account the environment they're working in and the other half of the workforce, which happens to be male. We also seem to put enormous value on men's views of support for women as a society. And you reference, I think, in the first part of the book, there's a conference you're attending where they're talking about um, allowing people to have children and flexibility in the workplace. And this young man talks about how the flexibility he needs and he's supportive of women and they should have flexibility. And everybody applauds. What a great statement from a young man. What a man. great guy. What a guy. And yet several statements have made, been made already by women and no applause. And we're heralding the individual as though what a turning point for a male to say these things. This seems to be in endemic. This yes, is part of the problem. It's interesting, isn't it? I do remember that day and the woman next to me who was in a very senior diversity role at one of our largest companies just leant over to me and said, I don't think a woman would get that applause. And I thought, oh, she's absolutely right. Um, and the other thing is that we are expected to be grateful. And I know that because I went through, you know, I had a lot of benefits being at Fairfax and I'm happy to, to mention them because Fairfax had a subsidised childcare centre which was just extraordinary. And I got paid um, maternity leave, which was unheard of. There were, there were very, very few organisations that did that 20, whatever, five years ago. So, um, and I know what an enormous difference it made, but I do also remember coming back and being deeply grateful that I was able to work part-time eventually, not when I first went back after my first child, but eventually. Um, and I think, you know, you work, your, you work yourself very hard at that point because you are deeply grateful. And while that's not the case with everyone, and I understand that because guess what? Women can be just as lousy and bad as men. So because people say to me, but we had a woman boss and she wasn't any good and she was nasty. And I say, yeah, and I've had male bosses like that. Guess what? Women are human too. But the whole flexibility thing I thought was fascinating because that young man who was lovely and spoke compellingly about actually the backlash he was confronting from taking flexibility, which was fascinating too. But yes, women do not get applauded. Um, in fact, we, we often get told to be quiet. So what I'm finding fascinating about Me Too and the whole campaign at the moment uh, is that women are being listened to and taken seriously. And I think that that's really a, an essential step. Do you think it's a wave that can be ridden to change? Oh, I, th I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, what, I've, what fascinates me about... Um, me too and what we've seen happening um and it's been enabled of course by social media let's be let's be honest that platform and, is and that's the question why i ask yeah. because there is such a tendency to focus on this shiny object over here and yeah. then we move on to the next twitter that's feed right. story that's right so i think i'm i'm hopeful i'm hopeful i mean who knows and there are certainly people writing at the moment that they'd like to be more optimistic but they suspect it may well dissipate what i think would be interesting I'm fascinated and I'm about to write a book that will broach some of this, is how do we use that platform 
to progress change. So that's, that's the next thing, and I think that's definitely true. But I think there's already some signs that that may well be happening. Some polling, which is showing um, the majority of men are now saying, yes, I do believe that these harassment incidents are happening everywhere and that women are not making it up and that it is a workplace problem. Well, I think that's a major breakthrough. But yes, I think it's how we translate that feeling and that momentum into workplace change. Because this, this is absolutely from Weinstein uh, to Don Burke to whoever else, these are workplace issues. This is about power and the workplace and abuses of power. So we have to be very clear about that. But I'm hopeful because I actually think of all people, Andrew Bolt recently said that these, this wouldn't have happened without women in power and that we need more of them. And I thought fascinating coming from him. Yes, and Catherine, we don't normally allow such vulgar words to be said on this program. <laughs> well, I did not think I would be would be quoting him, but I have to say, I thought he he got got it in a nutshell. He got it right. He yeah. did get it right, and that's he is right. Yeah, both of those those points that he made, I I concur, and I think that that's fascinating. So I'm I'm the you know I'm hardly a Pollyanna, but I am an optimist because I wouldn't do this if I wasn't. So I do see something very important. And I see I see it too with my daughters. So I find that fascinating. So I'm just watching them. One's in the workplace, one's about to join the workplace. The other one's still at uni. But I do think that they're seeing something very important as well. And um, I'm, I'm delighted. Tell me about unconscious bias and why we're not all cured once we go through some unconscious bias training. That's right. It's a fascinating one, isn't it? Um, so it was mentioned to me probably about two years ago. I was um, talking to someone who works in that area and they said, look, look, it's, it's terrific that organisations are actually addressing this, or at least when we say addressing, that they're at least instigating workshops and so on. What they tend to do is usually a once over lightly. Now, it does involve usually men and women, which is a good thing. So instead of siphoning the women off for remedial work and not doing anything about the rest of the workplace, usually unconscious bias programs involve everyone, um, but they're usually pretty quick. So an hour or two, let's show you how the brain works and how we all have biases, groupthink, uh, confirmation bias, and so on. There's many, many forms. Look, I think the problem is the research is showing people come out with their biases confirmed and one of the, and there could, that could be from a whole range of factors, but one of the most compelling, I suspect, is that it normalises bias. So people hear that and think that's fascinating. I didn't realise my brain did that. But goodness, everyone's doing it. So that's just the way it is. Because it's hard, you know, to challenge that. And it's hard to change the way you make decisions. So there are a couple of people I quote in the book who I think do very, very good work around this. Uh, Jennifer Whelan, who was at Melbourne Business School and now runs her own practice sign-up, she does some fantastic work. And she said she's worked with a few uh, companies who actually then move it on to how you change decision-making and um, how you instill different practices. So I think that there's some good to come of it, but I would be wary of the quick Band-Aid unconscious bias seminar because I think, as I say, the, the research is showing us it doesn't make a huge difference uh, to how people make decisions and look at the world. One thing that does seem to make a big difference in organisations, and it seems to be the more controversial point within the book, is the introduction of quotas within certain companies as well as the Australian Defence Force. And we will, I'd like to have, we'll get mm. to that a little bit further along. Why are quotas important? Well, I just wanted to make the point that most organisations would call them targets, not quotas, and there is a distinction there. So it's important. Normally in um, this kind of discussion, qu 
quotas are mandated, they're legislated. We don't have quotas in Australia, uh, but we do have targets and a number of large companies have introduced targets of various kinds, including parts of defence. Um, and we should say what these targets are. These are targets for the number of women that's right, appointed at different levels, in yep. certain roles. Often yeah. enough, obviously, introduced at sort of managerial um, level and, and beyond uh, because that's where the gap tends to escalate and widen. So um, targets... Um, yeah, they've had an impact. Yeah, I, I, you know, they're a bit of a blunt instrument. So, um, but I think if you believe in measuring things and and looking at where your progress uh, is occurring or not, then you do need to have some measures in place. But you can't uh, rely on that. So, I think the idea that you put a target in and everything else will work um, is naive uh, and counterproductive too, because you do get uh, quite a bit of backlash uh, because a lot of men will then say, "Well, that's unfair," um, which I always find sort of a little ironic because we pretty much had targets that were 100% male for a long, long time. Um, and I understand why that happened. That's socioeconomic factors and tradition and so on. Um, but when you go back to the principles, classic principles of affirmative action, uh, it's about giving support to those who've fallen behind and been marginalised, whether it's through race, gender and so on. Factors they have no control over. Um, we didn't dial in whether we wanted to be born male or female or what race we were. So th the point is that when people are marginalised, they need support to come up to the same level as the dominant group. Um, and that's basically what a target is. It's there to circuit break, um, help change the, the complexion of the cohort, um, and then ideally become redundant. Well, that's what, that's what was going to be my next question, which is that ideally a target is surely there just to break the culture or create the culture change that is required so that then it becomes just the part of the process and it's no longer a target. It's just we employ women actively into senior roles and we give them the opportunities. We're promoting these people and it's the norm. And, you know, that's, that's very true. Um, and quotas, by the way, just to, to backtrack for a moment, quotas, legislative quotas do exist in some parts of the world. Norway, for example, introduced them some years ago. Um, actually, quite a few European countries. Germany has a quota. They're for women on boards, so they're not through executive ranks. Um, a lot of people tell me that Norway's experience was a disaster. That's actually not the case, and I've gone to some effort in the book to point out it wasn't. Um, as I said before, targets and quotas are not going to be um, the solution on their own, but I think they are a help. And um, it's interesting, a few more people in Australia are now saying to me, I think we should just introduce quotas. We should just make it mandatory, get it done, and then they'll be redundant. They're a stepping stone to change. Um, because voluntary regimes, um, the, the reason the Norwegians introduced them, they tried voluntary regimes in their business community for five years um, and had no change at all. So they had very few women on board, something like 6%. Um, and they're now in the high 40s, that's 48% or so. So, look, they work. Um, there are some unintended, well, perhaps unintended, but there are consequences that maybe are not ideal. However, they do that, they do make that change happen. So they can be very useful. There are consequences, as you mentioned, and Elizabeth Broderick, there's a ter terrible quote within the book, um, which is under the chapter heading of Backlash and Confidence Tricks where she's basically regarded as being the worst thing, the most dangerous thing that could ever happen to the Australian Army. Well, the context to that quote uh, was Liz was delivering, uh, I think, the second part, or maybe may in the first part of the Broderick Review into Women in Defence. And um, 
it just shows you what a highly emotional debate this is when somebody in the audience said to her, you're the greatest threat to Australia's security ever, which is just an incredible exaggeration. Um, and she was delivering a report that actually set out some highly constructive ideas about making the most of the entire uh, Australian populace and all the talent in our country, um, and also modernising the ADF in a way that you know, the, the service chiefs and the, the CDF and deputy would, would all acknowledge it, it, it needs to do. The good news on defence is I see them doing some really fascinating things, and I think they are taking some very serious steps forward. Um, they've set targets. Uh, they've, you know, the number of women in, in a couple of the services has continued to go up. Retention remains an issue that we need to we need to focus on. But um, and also in terms of um, their response to sexual harassment, they set up something called Sempro, which I've mentioned is their uh, sexual um, misbehaviour response uh, office, which is really a bit of a world leader. Uh, very much well, victim-centric. I know we don't like to use the word victim in these circumstances, but very much structured to support people who have had to face that. Um, they've done some very, very interesting and progressive things. So it's, yeah, it's it's a tough one uh, because the ideas about a soldier, I think we still naturally think of as a, as a rugged Anglo-Saxon man, uh, but we've had some really visionary leadership. And David Morrison was one, David Hurley, who was the CDF when I joined that advisory board, um, the current CDF, Mark Binskin's doing a great job, and Angus Campbell, who's our current Chief of Army. And they're, they're really good thinkers and actors on this. Uh, so I, I remain optimistic, but the backlash is, is pretty strong too. So we have to understand that when we do these changes, people talk about it being politically correct and mucking around at the edges. It's not actually. It's something that strikes a chord deep inside people and therefore can trigger some really um, kind of vicious um, objections. And it's because hey, that's how society has run for a long time. So even someone like me would say, I guess at the beginning of my career in this area, I probably underestimated that. I probably underestimated. It just seemed to me there was a logic around this that was kind of compelling. If you're going to educate women, you're going to allow them to be fully functioning citizens of their own society, then you will use those talents and skills and you will adjust accordingly. Uh, they will continue to have children. Of course they will. But it's not rocket science to change the way that those cultural norms operate. And, we'll, you know, we'll work it out. We'll work out workplaces. We can, we can sort it out. I think I underestimated um, the resistance to that um, and the way that power is um, currently um, divided up in the world. And there's a lot of defence of that because a lot of people have benefited. From that. Does it still surprise you though? Because you've been interviewing alpha males of powerful corporations for more than 20 years mm. now. Does it surprise you that it's no, still? No, no. I think the older I've got, the more I get it. <laughs> they're, well, they're defending their patch, you know, and they have been in charge. And I think, you know, to give them their due, I mean, I think a lot of them genuinely believe they're better at it. Now, that's clearly not all of them. And I want to make the point a lot of the ones I interviewed the book completely get that that's not the case. They actually understand intrinsically that it's time for a change and they genuinely want to change it. Um, but I do understand, yes, I do understand because they've been brought up that way. Um, they really think that, in fact, they're the best people to be running things. And, that, and they, the other thing is, talking earlier about listening to women, I think that they've, because for many years they've been told, you know everything, you're in charge, you're the leader. When they come to an area like this, which they don't actually understand, many of them, and have to learn about, I think that's hard too. It's threatening and it makes them feel as though they're on very thin ice. 
Um, and I think that's, you know, we talked about masculine stereotypes. I think that's one of the really unfortunate parts of that masculine and certainly that masculine leadership style that I have to be infallible and know the answers to everything. You can't possibly know what women have been through in their lives and are continuing to go through and the pressure they face. So learning to listen um, and actually understand the benefits from this, which we've been saying till we're blue in the face. The business case for better gender equality is so compelling. It's been proved over and over again. Well, well, financially as well, to get more women into the workforce. There's billions of revenue just sitting there waiting for the Australian government to take. Totally. Totally. And the other part that I always tell people, which usually gets a laugh, because I'm married to an actuary and he just has never, I mean, clearly we're still married, so clearly he's on board. He just said risk mitigation. He wants to, (laughs) you know, putting all our eggs in one basket here. Uh, He just was never anything but supportive. He said, go back to the, you know, I said, oh, I don't know. We had three small children under the age of three. We had twins and an older daughter. So Times are a little tough there. But he knew I loved what I did and he just said, you know, I've got to keep this going. It's, it's, it's working. So, and, you know, when people talk to me about generational change and say, oh, there's these men in their 60s, I'm married to one of them. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not convinced that the generational thing is as compelling as some people make it out to be. I will, however, acknowledge that men kind of in their 30s at the moment with young kids do often want to or need to spend more time with them because often they have partners who are working. And in Sydney and Melbourne and a lot of places in Australia, they need to, so they do get that there has to be some give and take. So sometimes they're dragged to that, screaming and kicking, sometimes not. Sometimes they genuinely want to spend more time with their kids. That shifted. That's a big shift. And You make the call within the book for alpha males to step up and be part of the change because that's the only way the system will change because they are the system yeah. themselves. And it's to your point there, you know, you're not condemning the alpha male, but you're saying there's a role here for you to step up and take. So where have you seen that work? Well, I've seen it work in, I suppose, most of the organisations I mentioned. I think Martin Parkinson did a fantastic job at Treasury and now at PM&C where he set up um, this Secretaries for Gender Diversity group um, where they're using it actually almost as a blueprint what went on at Treasury. I think he's been fantastic. Um, I think people like Lance Hockridge, who was the CEO of Horizon up in Queensland, the um, transport company, um, did a brilliant job there. Um, really compelling examples. Um, do you know it? Interesting, not so much in the book, although I mentioned Women in Mining, which is a fantastic network, and I was just a couple of months ago at their conference, over 800 people in Perth, Um, quite a few men. I mean, they were in the minority, but some fantastic uh, programs going on in some of our big resources companies, uh, including BHP, which has committed to a 50-50 intake, um, and they're, they're getting there, and they're doing some really interesting things. So I think there's some... There's some shifts going on um, where I think that business case has actually become very clear to them uh, and compelling. But, you know, you have to have more than one supporter. So, yeah, it has to come from the top. I know that. But you've got underneath that top very senior level, there's what we call the concrete layer um, or as someone once put it to me, and I think I've used it's just such a great quote. She said, there's no such thing as the glass ceiling. There's a thick layer of men and I, I yeah. quoted that once and some man even said, oh, I don't know what that means. Well, I'll tell you what it means. It's not some sort of um, impermeable screen in front of women. It's a whole lot of men who are hanging on to their powerful roles because 
they feel they're the best at it and they get a lot of, you know, privilege from those roles. Um, and so what we have to do is work at that as well. So we have to work at all levels. We have to work at the, the, the alpha males um, and we have to understand that. But you know what? Well, it does come down to some power sharing and that's not always going to sit well with certain types of people. So, you know. Catherine, do you remain hopeful? I am. I'm an optimist. I've always been an optimist about it. I, I seriously wouldn't keep doing this if I didn't think. You just have to keep going. Um, someone said to me the other day, she was an ex-political staffer, and she said in politics we say, you say it eight times, and then they might hear you. So what's this? This is book number four. Got Another four to more. go. <laughs> well, Catherine, I, on each one, please feel free to come back and talk to us to s- some more. It's been wonderful. It's, it's certainly insightful. It's deeply researched, as I said. So thank you for coming in today. Thanks for having me. And you can find Catherine's books online and in stores. You can also follow her on Twitter and follow us at ConversationsWW. This has been James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thank you very much for listening.